Oh, that's handy. Didn't know it said anything. Um, I'm going to share my screen on Zoom, which I don't normally do, but it's going to be better today. I, takes me a second to do that. I apologize. Um, this morning, I want to dive into another of the uh, presentations uh, that I intend to do uh, in January. Uh, some of this is going to be familiar to some of you, but I've expanded it a little bit. And so I just want to dive into it and talk about biblical illiteracy. And this morning, I really want to talk about why that matters, why it's significant, why it's something that we need to be paying attention to as the church and as parents um, and as those who are serious disciples of Christ. So illiterate means having little or no education and it, and it, specifically in the context of an inability to read or write. That's typically how we interpret that or understand it today. But it can also mean that it's showing a, a lack of acquaintance with fundamentals of a particular field of knowledge. So when we're talking about illiteracy, biblical illiteracy. That's what we're talking about is a marked lack of understanding or comprehension of what Scripture says. What does God's word say? And when we talk about that, one thing that I want to reiterate over and over this morning and even next week as we dive into sort of addressing the problem is that the lack, the illiteracy associated with the Bible is directly connected to our trust or our faith in God. If we don't trust that God exists, we don't trust that his word is true, then our understanding and our desire to become literate will taper off. The church today is increasingly illiterate of what the Bible says. And we see that more and more as you interact with people. We've slipped into a state uh, where little to no education or training is happening. We have uh, churches of tens of thousands uh, where very little is said, where we spend time soothing the conscience, where we spend time uh, sowing falsehoods and heresy, but we're not addressing the reality of what scripture says. Therefore, people are stuck in their understanding. They're, they're unfamiliar with what God has said. They're unfamiliar with how we should interpret the world around us. And so we fall prey to the same uh, temptations, the same hardships, and the same struggles that the world falls prey to. We see the church becoming far and far increasingly accepting of things that scripture itself, that God himself has said are sin. There's a marked lack of familiarity with fundamentals of the faith. We have to be make no mistake about it. This is a problem. It's a big problem. And I, I realize, as I said, this is something that we've talked a lot about, but it isn't something that we find uh, others talking about quite as much. And the church in general. So... <clears throat> Let's dive into this. 
current state, the, the question is, how well does the church know the Bible? And the research that's been done is pretty alarming. What we find is, well, let's just get into it, because uh, this is a 2017 study done by LifeWay Research. And I want you to notice that these are studies that were years ago. LifeWay Research, right? How much of the Bible have you personally read? If you look at the percentage, all of it one or more times, right, we have 20%. This is in America, a, a country that is founded on Christian principle, a country that was founded, uh, in my estimation, by inspiration from God as he, as he brought our founding fathers to the conclusion that we have to sever ties with this tyrannical king. But here we are in 2017, where 20% of Americans have even read the Bible. We have 30% of people who have, uh, you know, we've read several passages or more. That's the largest percentage of people They've only they're just familiar with some of the big stories, right? David and Goliath, maybe the walls of Jericho. Maybe they understand that. Hey, I, I've read some things about the end times and and those sort of more uh, tantalizing things, things that people like to dive into. But we have a very small percentage of people who have read the Bible all the way through. We also find that is. Uh, this is among Protestant churchgoers, right? This is the church in America amongst Protestant churchgoers. Say in 2019, same research group, Lifeway. How often do you read the Bible? And what I want you to notice is that of church-going Christians, Protestants, you and I, amongst our peers in the body of Christ, only 32%, far less than half, read the Bible daily. We have, a, we have some that read it a few times a week, some that read it once a week. But here's the reality, right, that there is a... Very little going into believers. There isn't a lot of reading happening. It isn't enough that the pastor or the, the, the missionaries, those that we would see as kind of the spiritual elites, would know the Bible. We are all called to be ambassadors, representatives for Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says that we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives to the world around us. Therefore, we should be familiar with what he stands for and what he said. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says to be already always to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Jude chapter 3 exhorts us, commands us, it's an imperative that we would contend, we would stand for, that we could make an argument for the faith. But if we can't, if we don't know what the faith is, if we don't understand what God has said, how can we do that? It's a sad thing. We should feel like this guy when we hear those kinds of things. And not only that, it should inspire us to prayer. 
I don't know if that guy's praying or not, but you know, you're limited when you're cheap like me and you're not going to pay for pictures. So that's yeah. Could be listening to his teenage kids. That's possible. <laughs> but it should inspire us to pray. It should inspire us to pray as the body of Christ for the body of Christ. That we would earnestly contend in prayer for those who are lacking in understanding. I want to talk about why it's important for just a moment. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to get back to some of the research here in a moment, but let's get back to this. Because the reason it's important is that it's about the foundations. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. We talked a little bit about this last week, but here Jesus is giving a parable. He's instructing, he's using that story, this illustration to teach a lesson. And he says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And when the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it fell not in, it was not, for it was founded on the rock. It stood when the storms came, when those, uh, when society began to crash in, for example, and started to change the definition of what was good to evil and what was evil to good, which scripture tells us is something that we need to be watchful for, which is something that the world around us is going to do. When those kinds of things began to happen, he stood firm because he had built a foundation on the rock. Sadly, though, as we read through the rest of this parable is where we find the majority of Christians, at least the majority of Christians in America. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And when the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house, it fell and great was the fall of it. When society begins to redefine things, when all of a sudden it's unkind or it's hateful or some, some other adjective that puts us in a corner, we capitulate, we cave into that. There's no foundation. We don't have any surety that this is the word of God. Therefore, because it is the word of God and certain and unchanging, I can stand upon it. And so we fall down. And it becomes scandalous to the world around us. It becomes one of those things that sucks the witness out of the 32% who are founded in, their, in the Bible. The foundation that we have built upon is going to determine if our faith is steadfast, if it's rock solid or not. So a couple of questions. Number one, do I operate with the foundation that God exists and that he is the creator? We talked about this last week, right? We're creating this steadfast faith, this built upon the rock, trust in the Lord. And so what are my presuppositions? What do I assume to be true from the very beginning? Does God exist? Is he the creator? Do I operate on the foundation that the Bible is correct and accurate in its description of sin, salvation, and all other matters of life? We trust that God is and that his word is true. 
foundation. Here's some more. This was done by the Barna Group back in 2016. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? The Bible contains everything a person needs to know to live a meaningful life. Forty-five percent agreed strongly, but only forty-five percent. That's less than half. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? The Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. In other words, the Bible is true. It is accurate. I can found my life upon it. Listen, only 33% of those polled in this, in this study agreed with that statement. Isn't it interesting that there's a parallel between those? Granted, this study was done three years before the other one. But isn't it interesting that... 33% who have studied the word of God, 32% that have studied the word of God, who read it daily, and the correlation to say, hey, I strongly agree that the principles of, what, of the word of God are true and accurate. Uh, I'd have to look. That's a good question. Because I don't remember. Uh, I think I think it's just in, in America. I think it's Barna's six year. Every six years, they kind of do a survey, um, and I think that's what it was. I've got a link here. The Bible in America six year. It's the six year trend, but it's just America. It's not. It isn't the church per se. Um, good question, though. Another one. Which of the following? Statements comes closest to describing what you believe about the Bible. It's the actual word of God and should be taken literally word for word. Now, I think that there's some two of these right here, right? Because one, it's the actual word of God. We should take every word literally word for word. And then the second one, it's the inspired word of God. No errors. Some verses are symbolic. And I think that it's kind of a tricky question, right? Because we take the Bible seriously. We take it literally where it's intended to be taken literally. They were all inspired words of God, absolutely. But here's the thing, right? Who here believes what the Bible says about Jesus being the rock? I mean, who, raise your hand if you believe that. So we could go out and we could pick rocks up in the driveway, and that would be Jesus. I mean, right? We, we, we don't take it literally. We understand that it's a metaphor, that there's a simile, something being used there. So... I feel like this is kind of a tricky question in some respects, but <laughs> true. Yeah. You know what I mean. But as we, as we are in the word of God, as we, engage with it on a regular basis we begin you see the metaphors you see the illustrations that god uses and we see those consistently right when we studied through uh jesus on mass when we see some of those pictures throughout scripture that was one in particular that we saw right? we see this being the illustration and here is jesus in matthew chapter 7 talking about being the foundation 
And then in John chapter 1, we understand that he is the word made flesh. But what's startling is that we have just over, if you combine those two, just over half of Americans believing that the word of God is inspired in any way, shape, or form. Just over half, 52%, if you take those two and you just add them together, which is probably not an accurate representation statistically and all of those things. But if we simplify it for the sake of discussion, that's where we're at. The alarming thing to me is that if 52% of Americans in 2016 said, hey, I believe that the word of God, the Bible, is actually God's word, that it's inspired why are only 32% of people within the church reading it on a daily basis? Why the disparity? Why the separation? Those who would take the name of God and say, listen, we are your disciples. We are your children. But I can't be bothered to read what you've told me. Just, just one more here. I want to talk about this. So this is a Nehemiah, and this is a terrible graphic, but there's lines up there, and they mean things. You can't read what they mean. We're going to talk about just a few things here. This is the Nehemiah Institute's peer trench chart. Peer stands for politics, economics, education, religion, and social issues. It's basically their test of worldview position that they administer to high school youth within the Christian community. So they are polling specifically people who attend, who are growing up in churches, who attend Christian schools or, or even homeschooled, but, but they're targeting Christians. That's who they're polling specifically. And they've been doing this for a long time. Now, here's the thing. I want you to know, first of all, in, in the bottom couple of lines there, you can't really see it, but there's a green line there and that's the homeschoolers. They sort of started, they were late to the game mainstream. But as long as they've been polling this since 1988, you see that there is a steady decline. The orange line and the black line, both of those represent some segment of Christianity, youth within Christianity. Whether it's public school kids who are, who are Christians or it's those um, traditional Christian schools. I'm going to have to tweak this slide. I'm going to have to make it visible. I can't really see. But that's what those two bottom lines are. And there's a steady decline. Here's the thing. What I want you to notice, though, this is, this is the big thing. Right here in this box, that is 90 plus percent of Christian youth that they've pulled. 90 plus percent of Christian youth. And where do they fall? They don't fall even in the moderate Christian category. They fall in the secular category. In other words, their worldview is no different than their peers, than the kids that have never been churched, than the kids who don't understand what God's word said, who haven't been raised in Christianity, who don't attend Christian schools. Their worldview is the same 90% of the time. Is it related to the fact that only 32% of their parents are reading the Bible on a regular basis? Is it related to the fact that from churches, uh, pulpits around the world and churches all over America, that probably only 32% of those pastors read their Bible on a daily basis? 
biblical illiteracy matters. It affects the way we look at the world around us. A biblical worldview is going to hear, do, and preach the word of God. Because it preassumes God's word is the foundation upon which truth, all the truth, that we're going to establish our lives. I want to look at this here for just a moment longer. I tried to sort of zoom in, but you can't. I'll fix this. Okay. You notice that on that chart, there is one line that is consistently the same since 1988 and even slightly improved. And is those areas, it is those schools, those kids who are being trained, specifically trained to have a biblical worldview. They're being trained in about pre-assumptions, those things that we presume to be true from the very beginning. They're being taught that God exists and his word is true, and that's the foundation upon which we build our lives. The word of God is how we interpret the world around us. And that's been in steady. They call it, they call it the biblical theism category. This is how they define it. A firm understanding of issues as interpreted from scripture. These individuals, th this individual is allowing the scriptures to guide his reasoning regarding ethical, moral, and legal issues to determine correct or incorrect thinking. Truth is seen as absolute for all ages, for all time. They go on, they say that a key distinctive, key distinctive is God is sovereign over all areas of life. Civil government should be highly limited in purpose and authority and under the supervision of scripture. All people will live in eternity in heaven or hell as judged by scripture. In other words, God's word is the standard. That's what they're saying. People who live like that, who believe that the word of God is that foundation, that he is, as a creator, makes the rules and is sovereign over all of it, that he exists and his word is true, and it, it, they remain at a very high level of trust. They interpret the world around them correctly from the perspective that God looks at it from. As we engage with the word of God on a very regular basis, it's going to inform our understanding and it's going to, un it's going to inform the mode of action, how we engage with the world around, them, around us. And the question that I pose to you again is how could we do that if we don't know it, if I'm illiterate in what the Bible says, how can I engage with the world around me correctly? How can you or me, how can any Christian, without knowing what God has said, represent to the world around them what God has done? When I was at Global Survey International's conference, whenever that was, a year ago. It was interesting because one of the things that was very startling, and they talked about it very briefly, and they use it as a means to introduce a strategic partnership that they've created with another mission organization. And the mission, 
the, the problem that they were having is that they have people who were coming in, they were desirous, they had an appropriate and correct understanding of lost, that there is a need for those to go and share the gospel with the lost, that they were called, in fact, maybe even to be missionaries. However, they couldn't articulate the gospel. They didn't know what it said. And so just as we have remedial courses in college, have an aunt who, who used to teach English and she was, she said almost every student coming into college would have to start with remedial courses. That was just the plan of action. We had to get them caught up to where they should be before we could even get to college. And what's happening is that when they're finding the same thing, these mission organizations are finding the same thing amongst Christians. They don't know the word of God. Yet here they are literally taking on the mantle of ambassador and representative. I'm going to go share the gospel with this lost people over here. But I'm not particularly familiar with it. I'm not particularly familiar with the Bible and how we would even implement that. I don't understand the principles of it. So how can I cross cultural boundaries with truth and put that into practice? So they have to send missionaries to specific training so they might understand what the word of God says. Churches, we should be sending those missionaries fully prepared, fully equipped, trained for the tasks that they've been called to, that we are sending them to. The Bible tells us, and Jesus himself said, right, then we're going to hear the things that he taught and we're going to do them. Biblical literacy doesn't stop with hearing it. Biblical literacy starts with hearing it and continues with doing it. Just as those missionaries who have been called out, who are going out and having to have remedial training, they're engaged in something. They're doing something. In John chapter 17, turn there with me for a moment. John 17, 17. As Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have this small insight into part of the prayer that he is uttering here before the Father, looking forward to his sacrificial death, looking forward to them coming and taking him. He says in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We have a couple of things happening here. Number one, Jesus confirms that the word of God is truth. That it is truth, period. It won't be inconsistent with any scientific discovery. It won't be inconsistent with anything else that would be true. In fact, it would be the other way around. When we find, when we make quote-unquote scientific discoveries, they can't be inconsistent with revealed truth, with what God has established in his word. At the point that they do, we understand that that biblical, or excuse me, that scientific discovery is wrong. Yet here we have people with a completely different worldview, even those who are antagonistic and, and hateful of Christianity with the idea that I'm going to prove it wrong. Therefore, as they look at science, as they practice science, so to speak, 
they begin with a foundationally wrong misunderstanding. And we look back throughout history and we see discovery after discovery after discovery related to people's trust in God and his creation. We see scientists after scientists who have discovered things that God has created in his creation that speak and witness of who he is and what he's done, even his eternal power in Godhead. And when we begin with the foundation that God exists and his word is true, everything, truth, falls into place. Jesus says God's word is true. Not only that, but he says, listen, sanctify them. He prays that God would sanctify us by his truth. Now, the word sanctify can mean two things. It can mean, one, to conform into the image of Christ. And that's where we take our doctrine of sanctification. Where we're molded, we're changed, we're we're growing in our relationship with Jesus. But it can also mean to set apart or to consecrate for purpose. So here is Jesus praying that we would be set apart, that we would be consecrated, that we would be established and prepared for the purposes that he has given us. And what does he say by truth? Ultimately, for you and I as believers, if we want to engage in the callings that God has given us, it is foundational that we are engaged in his word. Jesus said, sanctify them, set them apart for the purposes, the plans, your will, Father, by your word. We have to understand what God's word says. All around you, you talk to Christians and people, and there's this hope of discovery of what God's will and purpose and plan for my life is. But there's only 32% of us who are reading the Bible on a daily basis. If Jesus is saying that the word of God is what's going to confirm and consecrate us, set us apart to the purposes and the plan that God has had, we have to be faithful in the small things if we want anything else. We need to be engaged with the word. In James chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, James chapter 1. This is a very practical book that we, not very long ago, studied through, and hopefully this isn't too far out of our remembrance. Because we do well to remember, we do well to heed it. James chapter 1, verse 21, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluidity of naughtiness, excessive naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I want to just pause there for a moment. That word engrafted it means implanted. It's brought into who we are. So we're putting off this other stuff, which is our pursuit of our lust, and we, we kind of derive that from the, the rest of the book of James. Right? We're putting off all this stuff that characterized us in our sin nature. And we're taking in the word of God. We're bringing it in. We're planting it in our heart and mind. It's engrafted into who we are. In other words, it's indistinguishable from you or me. That the word of God and us, those representatives would be so similar that when people would look at us, they would call us Christians, which simply means little Christ. His picture. We are created in his image. We are renewed in the image of Christ. We are purpose predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. And it begins with the engrafting of the word. It begins with that coming into our hearts and minds and 
distinguishing, becoming part of who we are. But he continues on. He says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We can't be those who are just hearing the word. If we're going to have it engrafted, if it's going to be part of who we are, then it's going to become something that is part of what we do. So we're going to not be hearers only. We're going to be those who are doing the word. It's going to come in and it's going to come out as action. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Right? You look in the mirror, you see yourself in the morning. That's your natural face. That's as good as it gets without assistance. Right? You got to comb your hair in the morning. You got to brush your teeth and get the stuff out of them. You got to, whatever has to be done. Takes a lot for me. I got to use products and, you know, I like to look sharp. Takes all the help I can get. But right, we understand that. We look in the mirror and when we roll out of bed, that's as good as it gets without help. And when we look into the word of God, it exposes who we are. We look at it, this is as good as I can be without help. And scripture says of you and I, there is none righteous. No, not one. As good as it gets without help is not good enough. For he beholds himself, verse 24, and he goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. If we're going to name the name of Christ, but we're going to ignore the word of God, we're just like that person who looks in the mirror every day, says this is terrible, and walks away and doesn't care. I don't care how I represent Christ. I don't care that this is part of what I should be doing. I don't care that the word of God should be engrafted in me, that it should be part of who I am, that my representation to the world around me should be indistinguishable from the image of Christ. I don't care. Sadly, I'm convinced that that is predominant within the church. And I base that upon the literacy rate that there are those only 32% that the bulk 80, almost 80% of the church doesn't read the Bible. Excuse me, almost 70%. All right, mental math is hard, okay? 70% of the church doesn't know the Bible. He goes on and he describes another character here. He says, but... Whosoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, whoever looks into the word, it becomes engrafted and, and continues therein. Right? I've seen what it says. I've heard what it says. And now it's become part of me. And therefore, I'm going to continue in it. I'm going to exercise it. I'm going to let it come out. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. A description of two kinds of people, those who care and those who don't. We as believers should care. If this is the word of God, if this is inspired by God, if this is what he has said, we should care what it says. We should listen to what it says. We should take serious what it says. And not only that, we should let it be effective in our lives. Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. We probably most of us know verses 16 and 17 and 
Uh, I do too, but I don't remember verse 15 very well. So we're going to have to turn there. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 15. Now from a child thou hast known. Now this is Paul and he's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he's talking about Timothy's upbringing here. And he says that Timothy, from the, from the time you were a child, since you were a little kid, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise in the salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And I think there's a key for how we begin to address this problem found in this verse. We're going to come back to that next week. From the time that he was a child, he was being instructed and taught in the word of God. Not instructed and taught as if it was good advice, as if it was moral and, and somehow ethical, but instructed as if this is the inspired word of God and it shall govern your life. It continues, though, and it gives us the description of the Bible. It says all scripture, all of it, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 21. What's the last verse in Revelation 21? Does anybody know? Hold on. Biblical literacy at work. 22, Revelation 22-21, from the beginning to the end. It's true. It's correct and it's accurate. It's all given by inspiration of God. It was his utterance. It was his inspiration to those who were penning the epistles, who were writing the history, who were recording the things that we find in Scripture. It was given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It is good for and it has returned for doctrine. Right? Those are the fundamentals of the faith. Those things that we establish that this is what God has said is true. Doctrine, reproof. Right? That's, that's when we have to deal with things. That's when we take the word of God and we say, listen, look into it. And you're either going to acknowledge your natural self or you're not. Reproof, correction, and correction. Right, wrong thinking. We're thinking about things incorrectly. This is how the world thinks about it. This is that secular mindset. We want to have a biblical mindset. So therefore, the word of God is going to correct us in that. And for instruction in righteousness. Right, we want to know what's right and good and acceptable before God. Here it is written for us. And the purpose, the fruit, the profit that it brings about in you and I, it says in verse 17, that the man of God, that you and I as his children... His disciples may be perfect. That means complete, thoroughly furnished into all good works. There isn't some other thing that we need. We're not these missionaries who are sent off who need remedial training because we understand the word of God. We're not looking for purpose and looking for all this stuff that, the, that people yearn for because we understand the word of God. We find that there is purpose in every single thing that God has brought us to. And because we trust the Lord, because we trust that he exists, that he is the creator, that he is therefore sovereign, and he's given us his word, when he calls us to whatever it may be, we find purpose and fulfillment in that. Because this is the work of God. This is where he is sovereignly placed me. And sure, I didn't go to be a missionary in some far-flung place. I'm not called to be a pastor of a church. I'm not called to do this or that or those things that we would look at and say, man, that person's really serving God. 
But if that's the mindset that we have, that we've missed what the word of God says. We've missed that we have purpose. That we are in ministry as God defines it in everything that we do. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, longest book in the Bible. The middle verse in this, you know, for you Bible trivia folks, the middle verse in Psalm 119, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, is the middle verse of the Bible, as verses are numbered. Just remember that the chapters and verses, they were not inspired. So, you know, somebody got lucky. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 9. This, this psalm largely is about the Word of God. It's largely about the effects and the purpose of the word of God in our lives. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Right? We find that scripture, we, we, we look at the Bible and the purpose of the Bible according to the Bible. Well, it's to equip, it's to correct, it's to teach us in righteousness, as we read in 2 Timothy. But it says here, that it keeps us from sin. How is it going to cleanse us? How is it? And if you read in the, the ESV, for example, it, it, that's how what it says. How do we keep ourselves from sin? Well, it says, by taking heed according to thy way. David would write in, in the book of Psalms, listen, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's that preservation. So the word of God itself keeps us from sin. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God extends guidance to you and I. What else does the word do? Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to read verse uh, 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Right? We just have to understand that what is given here by inspiration of God is enough for the purposes of God. And one of the purposes of God in Scripture, we find in the next verse, verse 31, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Some of the Bible is written specifically to give an accurate account of Jesus so that we might believe on him, that we might have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5. First John 5.13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. The Word of God confirms and assures you and I, the believer, of our salvation. 
Psalm 19. Psalm 19. You know, I find right now as I'm going through this, that it's probably a good idea to reorganize these verses so that they're chronological or, or sequential. Be a little faster. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. David delights in the word of God, and he delights in the purpose that the word of God has in his life. He rejoices here that it's perfect. The law of God is perfect. It's not wanting in anything, that it does everything that it's supposed to do, that it endures forever. It's unchanging, that it's true. His judgments, those things that God has decreed are true and right. He makes the rules and there's nothing wrong with the rules that he has created. They're desirable. They should be desired and pursued after. We live in an area that's, Right, we have the California Trail that sneaks through here, where all these people are pursuing and running to California looking for gold. They would leave everything behind, purchase their stuff, load it on a wagon, drive themselves across the country so that they could go find little gold-colored rocks. Most of them lost everything. Very few of them succeeded in their endeavor, and very few of them, relatively speaking, made their fortune. And here, the word of God says of itself that it is more desirable, that it should be more sought after than gold. Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus, and he answered them and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it talks about the Bible being the defensive weapon. This is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Okay. Jesus. Uh, professes that the word of God is more important than physical food. Uh, but in addition to that, when Jesus is confronted by Satan, when he's tempted in the wilderness, he responds. He uses it as an offensive tool in his response. That, he, that Here it is. This is <laughs> Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. His response is a wielding of the sword of the spirit. His response is clarifying and confirming to you and I that it is something even more needful than the food that we would take physically. In Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. 
For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, the Bible cuts through our garbage and helps us see ourselves in right perspective. It cuts through the distractions and the, the, the things that culture would throw out there and lets us see it from the perspective of our Father. Isaiah chapter 55, last one here. Isaiah 55, maybe this section's a little long. Let me know afterwards if you think it's a little long. Maybe it's a little slow moving. Seems a little reworking, maybe. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Right? Rain goes out, it has a purpose, has a function in it fulfills that function that's the point here jesus is or excuse me god is making a parallel he's using a metaphor here so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth it shall not return unto me void or empty or without having accomplished that which it was sent to do but it shall accomplish that which i please and it shall prosper in the thing whether to i sent it it isn't human cleverness or willpower or you and I being smart enough or eloquent enough or well-reasoned enough or argumentative enough or whatever. We're not saving people. We're not convincing people. We are representing the Lord. We are representing our creator. It is God and his word that accomplishes those things. And we do well to wield it as the weapon, the offensive weapon that it can be in the hearts and minds of people. That we can use it as that tool to shine a light, to show them the mirror of who they are, that we can use it as the sword of the spirit that will cut through all of the excuses and garbage that we throw up and say, listen, this is why I can't, or this is why I shouldn't, or this is why I, I couldn't. The word of God sees through all of that and exposes to us and does the work which God sends it to do. Now, we may not reap the harvest in that moment. We may be only somebody who plants a seed, or we may be only somebody who waters that seed, but we might just be the one that gets to reap that harvest. And I'll just tell you that the word of God is going to be the tool and the mechanism whereby we share the gospel effectively, and I'm convinced of that. Because I can't think of anything better than the truth that God has given us. Here's a scene that nobody wants to see in their house. Right? You got the bathtub, it's overflowing, making a mess everywhere. And it takes one thing to stop all this, right? One thing, just turn the water off. Just turn the water off. And for you and I as believers, we, we are encountered with this on a daily basis. There is water flowing into us from the world around us all the time, 24-7. Maybe not 24-7, because some of us, when we sleep, we're out. We're done. We don't hear anything. We don't smell anything. Nothing, right? We're dead to the world for those hours that our eyes are closed. 
But when our eyes are open and our ears are open and we're smelling things, we're interacting with the world around us, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's at family functions, wherever it may be, just randomly out in the grocery store. You can't even go hiking in the woods anymore without encountering lots and lots of people. I remember when I was a kid, you'd go up to Independence Lake and you might see one or two people, maybe. I was talking to a guy at work the other day and he had taken his family up. They hiked up to Independence Lake and he said, we passed no less than 30 or 40 people on the way down. He says, we got up there and there was trash everywhere. It was, I mean, it's tragic, right? But what I'm saying is that everywhere we go, we're interacting. We're being affected by those around us. The water is always pouring in. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Jesus is speaking, and actually he's condemning the Pharisees. Because they have fallen prey to the, the input of the world around them in so many respects. Just like the church today has, we succumb to the influence of world or of the world around us, of, of being politically correct or woke or whatever the term may be at that moment, right? That we, that we fall prey to that because we have to somehow be acceptable. And the problem is when that overflows, it makes a mess. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For the out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Right, so what's running into your bathtub? What's filling it up all the time? If we have a steady diet all the time of the world crashing in on us, all of those things happening, of all kinds of outside influence that may not be consistent or acceptable before God or consistent with the principles that we find in Scripture, how do we combat? We have to change the abundance of our heart. We have to have it so full that there's no room left. We have to have the abundance of our heart built upon scripture built upon the truth so that when something wants to come in it has to go through if it has to displace something and the only way that it can displace something and push it out is for it to somehow be superior in its representation of the truth of god right at this moment this bathtub nothing that even that rubber ducky there sitting on top of the water it cannot stay in there there's too much water And if we're those who are consuming the word of God, a little bite here and a little bite there on a weekly or a monthly basis or, or something where maybe we just hear something on a Sunday, it's like that little rubber ducky sitting on top of the water. When other junk comes in, it falls out. And out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth is going to speak. Or just as we talked about being doers of the word. What Jesus is saying is whatever is inside here, whatever the abundance of our heart may be, that's how we're going to live and act and conduct ourselves. And when we somehow fill it with something or allow it to be filled with something other than truth, other than the word of God, if we, if we are not topping ourselves off on a very regular basis, we're going to find that the way that we act, 
the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we encounter the world around us, the things that we're willing to submit ourselves to, whether it's oppressive governments, whether it's loss of freedoms, whether it's tyrannical agendas, is increasingly greater and greater. That we as the church, as the body of Christ, as those who should be stalwart and steadfast in our faith, unchanging, become those who drift with culture. We may be just a few steps behind, but we're headed down the same path. What is the abundance of our heart? What are we filling it with? Have we filled it to the extent that there isn't room for the garbage? In Colossians chapter 3, turn there with me. Colossians 3 was hard to find today. Apologize. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of God, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in the heart to your Lord. We're going to let it dwell in us richly. That means, and the word richly means abundantly. The word dwell it means to uh, inhabit or to fill. It has permanent residence. So what, what is being said here, what Paul is writing, is that we would let the word of God fill us, inhabit our hearts and minds. Just as Jesus was talking about that word being engrafted within us, or excuse me, James was writing about that. That the word of God dwells in us. It becomes a habitation so much so that it fills every area. So when we look at economics and we look at politics and we look at uh, the way we raise our children, when we look at the ills of society and the things that are happening in the world around us, they're not an influence upon us, but they're something that is influenced by us. There's no room in the bathtub, and so those things don't stick. The word of God fills us to such an extent that it is the abundance of our heart. And therefore, when things come out, they're consistent. They're consistent with the representation of Jesus Christ that we are called to be. They're consistent with the word of God and the principles that are found therein so that they become a witness to the world around us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let, the world, let them see your good works that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. One more, one more reference here, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Right, here's the thing, and there's a couple of things I want to take away here as we close this morning. Number one, we are actively engaged in the Word of God. That is a consistent diet. We're not the 32%, but we're the 68%. We're the, the nearly 70% that need to correct. 
right? We, we, that means if 10 of us stood up, seven of us don't read the Bible on a regular basis, right? We want to make sure that we're the 32%. We want to make sure that we are those who are actively engaged in the word, that we are regularly consuming it, that we're not just taking it in and reading it, though I would recommend that to you. Step one, you remember that when we when we went through something very similar to this, I think we just looked at those, those statistics, the, that research a little bit. And one of the things that we took away and that we did as homework was to read the Bible, right? What did we say, six months or less or something? It was a short period of time. And lots of us did that. And lots of us, all kinds of insights in God's word. There was consistency. I would recommend that you read the Bible in a short period of time on a semi-regular basis. If you can't read it, listen to it. Put it on while you drive. You can get through in three months without a lot of effort. And what you will find is this consistent picture from Genesis to Revelation, what God has done, his interaction with mankind, his love and mercy towards us, his justice, all of those principles that we talk about in Scripture. But not only that, just because we're taking it in quickly doesn't mean that we're not meditating on it. We're not thinking it through. This, this person who is studying to show himself approved unto God. I'm studying as, right, we want to rightly divide the word. I want to understand what it says. And we're studying to show ourselves approved. In other words, when I look at it and I let the word of God come to bear on what I think and how I act, I let it come to bear on the way that I interpret the world around me. It's a corrective force in my life. And that requires of us a humble and repentant heart. That when we encounter things that we have thought about wrongly, that we have uh, heard, that we took as truth that are incorrect, whether it was sincerely or insincerely, whatever it may be, that when I encounter the natural man in the mirror, that I take the time to comb the hair, that I take the time to brush the teeth, that I take the time to wash my face by engaging in the word of God, by letting it change and correct, taking every thought captive to the mind of Christ. This is the way Jesus thinks about it. This is the way I will think about it. How can we do that if we don't know what it says? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Understanding what God calls good, what God calls bad. Here's the thing. By correcting illiteracy with active engagement in the word of God, we replace the input of the world with the input of God. And it's from that overflow. That's spilling over the sides of the bathtub that we serve as effective ambassadors for God. And next week, we're going to talk about steps that we can take, things that we can do personally within our families, within our church, within whatever context it may be, foundational, hopefully foundational principles that we can use to begin to correct illiteracy. And I'm hopeful uh, with your prayers and God's leading, this is something that, that others could espouse. They, they could take that on and say, yeah, this was really effective. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. I praise you for uh, those, Lord, who would study and look at these things and, and just kind of see where the, where the pulse of the church is. 
And Lord, I, I realize that I'm not a statistician and I didn't do the studies myself and, and, and I might be misinterpreting things. But nonetheless, Lord, it is alarming that the vast majority of Americans and even those within the church don't regard your word. Lord, that we don't listen to it, that we don't know it, that we don't read it, that we don't engage with it. And God, I pray by your spirit that you would sow conviction within the church. That you would sow conviction within the hearts of those who handle your word, those who preach it, that they might not be conformed to the image of the world, but Lord, that they would boldly stand upon truth. And I pray, Lord, for everyone here, and I pray for everyone who would ever hear this message, Lord, that you would, in their hearts and minds, extend grace. That we would be those who would study, that we would show ourselves approved, Lord, that we would be rightly dividing your word. That it would become the abundance and the overflow of our heart. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. And we look forward, we pray, uh, Lord, for the preparation of this next message. That we would, Lord, see those things that you have granted in your word as mechanisms to correct where we've gotten off. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.